Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz Podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 137, and today's guests are Jeremy Hitchcock and Gray China with of Minim. Ah, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, or for you insiders, Manch Vegas. It's where I grew up. Well, technically, I grew up in Hooksit, but I went to high school in Manchester. My dad was an entrepreneur, and he ran a leather coat factory in the historic mill buildings there. Well, the same mill buildings were the home to a major tech company that played a key role in keeping the internet running, and it was called Dyne, the leading cloud-based internet performance and DNS provider. The company was started by WPI students and went on to scale to an event acquisition by Oracle for a reported $600 million. Jeremy Hitchcock was the CEO of Dyn and one of its co-founders. He is on to his next company, which is called Minim. Gray is also an alum of Dyn and is now Minim's CEO. Minim, as they put it, is on a mission to make home Wi-Fi as safe and reliable as drinking water through its IoT platform that enables and secures a better connected home. The company is backed by Founder Collective and Flybridge Capital Partners. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the current state of the tech scene in New Hampshire, a deep dive into the story of Dyn from the early beginnings to acquisition, all the details on Minim and their technology, advice for founders on raising capital, a discussion about the acquisition process, recruiting members to your board of directors, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can get customized job alerts delivered to your inbox every day? It's a great way to keep informed of the over 4,000 jobs listed on VentureFizz and have jobs from a specific category sent directly to you. Don't let that career-defining opportunity pass you by. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jeremy and Gray. Jeremy and Gray, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for letting us be on the show. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks, Keith. Yeah, so we're going to go back to my roots uh, because I grew up in Hooksett, New Hampshire, and went to high school in Manchester, Trinity High School, home of the Pioneers. Nice. And uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in the tech scene in New Hampshire, because that's where you guys are based, and you've built a very successful company in Manchester in the Mill Yard, which I've got some roots that we'll talk about there, too. But um, what's going on in the, in the tech industry in, in New Hampshire and, and, and Manchester? Hey, there, there's a, there's a ton of stuff going on. I mean, yeah, first off, uh, you know, thrilled to be part of just the general Northeast Boston, New York ecosystem. I think we spent a lot of times being parochial on, on geography. Uh, that said, if we look at our own little, little area, uh, you know, certainly our time at Dime, but before that there was, uh, you know, just this huge wave of innovation around the Cabletron. And before that it was deck, so there's always been a really interesting legacy of, of technology, internet, semiconductors. Um, but I think really in the last 10, 10, 15 years, there's been an amazing stride in kind of north of Boston, uh, outside the, the, the 128, 495 belts. And, you know, we've been really fortunate to see some of, some of that rise together. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's interesting. There was recently a statue that got put in uh, right along the banks of the Merrimack River in Manchester for a guy named Ralph Baer, who worked at an early defense contractor and, and invented the video game, right? His, uh, an exact replica of his office, his basement office, is in the Smithsonian Museum. And so, you know, people don't talk about it a lot, or it's not as obviously as top of mind as Silicon Valley or you know, the big, uh, you know, education institutions, uh, down in Boston, but there's always been a kind of a Yankee resourcefulness in Manchester, uh, and an, an interest in innovation and interest in, and in, in doing interest, you know, cool technologies. Uh, and I think that we are both, you know, part of that and are excited to help, uh, perpetuate in a lot of different ways. You know, some of it's building companies, uh, some of it's, you know, writing checks to other people to help them start companies. So it's really that uh, trying to build that ecosystem that I remember a long time ago, we, you know, we were kind of just really getting traction at Dime. We went out and hung out with Brad Feld in, uh, in Boulder and really took seriously a lot of the stuff that he thought about and talked about um, when he's doing that work out there and brought that back. And I think, you know, that mix of being leading, having entrepreneurs lead that, that community activity uh, we really took that to heart. And so, you know, uh, that's what we've been really working hard on and really having a lot of fun doing. Yeah. And that was a fun fact about the, uh, the, the video game piece, but, um, it, so when we we're chatting before this podcast, you'd mentioned the, the, the hashtag was invented by someone from New Hampshire too, right? 
Yep, Chris Messina, who uh, was a Blue Knight, fellow Blue Knight at Manchester West High School. West High School grad. Wow, okay. West High School grad. Yep, plenty of great things. Uh, but yeah, the uh, hashtag is, is thanks to him. Uh, but I mean, there's just a lot of really exciting things that when you look around of, of just how different people have played a part, um, it, it is, it is something I think that a lot of kind of the more Yankee spirits like, Oh, well, we don't, we, we don't do anything that, that's that interesting. And then meanwhile, people are world-class at what they do and their innovations and ideas, uh, spread across the world. So again, just excited. And, and now we're seeing a, a new wave of industry around bio stuff, which I don't know anything about, but it's, it's exciting to see these people talking about goo instead of, uh, in bits. Yeah, it's really crazy. So another kind of another world famous person that's in the mill yard is a guy named Dean Kamen, uh, who none other than Barack Obama just uh, last year, I think, referred to as the most important American inventor since Thomas Edison. And, you know, in, in between inventing the Segway and the insulin pump, uh, you know, they just got an $80 million grant to manufacture human engineered tissues and organs. And there's actually a facility in the mill yard that is using uh human collagen that's being produced at scale uh, by tobacco leaves to collagen. Yeah. Human collagen printed yeah, at scale with tobacco leaves to print human lungs uh, and replacement parts. So there, there really is just an unbelievable diversity of uh, technology and engineering and cool computer science. And so it's just, it's a fun place to be. And, you know, from our perspective, no reason to leave. Right. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you think of like the, the engineering behind the Segway to make it, do what it does and then what you mentioned of just i can't repeat it because it was so like far-fetched of tobacco leaves somehow human lungs i, I don't know somehow someone figured that somehow connected so, yeah it, it's really amazing um now what's the funding environment because there is um you know the millworks fund there's uh was it 10x venture partners mm-hmm. so there's there seems to be a little uh, you know some local funding activity too not just boston or going out west yeah, and I, I think that that's really started uh, not just by us, but by other, you know, kind of a generation before us, people that uh, built SoftDesk, um, thought about, hey, how do we take some of the money that we were able to earn off of these companies and, and these exits and put it back into the next generation of software companies? And, and that's absolutely true, both with 10X, which is a, you know, uh, kind of an angel investor group that's very active and has a lot of relationships with Dime, uh, including uh, Liz Hitchcock, who has... You know, Jeremy's better half and was very early on involved with Dine as well. And, uh, and then the Millworks Fund, which is a, you know, kind of New Hampshire's version of Mass Challenge. Uh, there's a public-private partnership aspect to it. And it focuses on investing $600,000 a year into New Hampshire-based uh, startups. So you got that. And then, you know, you got uh, another one, good friend of ours, Corey Van Wallenstein, who was the former chief product officer at, at uh at Dine and he's doing a ton of local investing and being very, very active with the companies to help mentor and grow them. Uh, and then, uh, our, you know, Kyle York, uh, just, uh, jumpstart with another couple of guys, uh, York growth, um, which we're really pumped to see, which we'll have, you know, that's obviously they have a much broader focus than Manchester, New Hampshire, but, but to have them here is super exciting. Um, and they're not just doing the funding side. I mean, they're doing this, this hybrid, uh, growth studio of some form. So I think one of the nice things is you see people usually taking these either contrarian or, or very unique approaches to what's the goal. The goal is to uh, create value is to, to build product for customers. And to do that, I think can, can get internalized in these very different ways. So he's, uh, he's doing it in a slightly different way than just getting a bunch of people that write checks to organizations. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think another way to do it is uh, just go build another company. Right. So that's definitely when, uh, when Jeremy was, you know, very first, when you first started, you know, kind of bemoaning the, uh, the Mirai botnet and being super annoyed at it and, uh, and wondering why there wasn't a solution to that kind of problem, uh, back when you were kind of, um, you know, during the sale of, uh, of Dyn to Oracle, I was pretty excited about it. Wrote you, you know, obviously easy to write a, write a check to support what you were up to. Um, and I've been following it ever since. And that's, you know, that ultimately led to, to, you know, joining back up. It was too much fun to, uh, you know, wanted to be on the next ride together. Uh, and so, you know, it started in June, uh, and are ready to take this company, hopefully in the same exact uh, path of customer growth and, uh, and internet scale impact that, uh, that we took dying here at, here at Menem. Well, um, Kyle York's family had a major impact to me with Indian head athletics 
Totally. There you go. Was the go-to spot to get your sporting goods equipment. It it very much. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually, before, uh, you know, obviously, uh, keeping, keeping a retail family shop open for as long as they did is, is really very respectable. It's now, uh, it's, it's now a very cool, uh, location called shoppers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, before it turned into, uh, shoppers, uh, we were able to, uh, our kids, I think of both of all, all of them yep. have, uh, have, have frequented the shop and, and, uh, have Get procured some yeah. or, or, uh, or, or soccer stuff or, or what have you. So very cool to, you know, again, that's one of the nice things about being in a community where, where there is, uh, um, just connections to all sorts of different people and, 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 Hey, is it easier buying something on Amazon? Eh, maybe, but you, know, you support, you support your local community. Yeah. It's always Manchester is a very strong community in that sense. And, uh, and I think it's the same community that it has for sports. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about sports and the coaching mafia that kind of came out of Manchester and there's the comedy mafia that kind of came out of Manchester. And I think there's definitely like a, there's a startup ecosystem mafia yeah. that comes out of it where we're all excited to be boosters for one another and, and see everyone succeed and, you know, rise and tide lift all boats. Now, did you both like, I know, uh, you went to high school in Manchester, but did, were you both born there? Like, so, so what, where'd you guys grow up? Was it Bedford, Manchester? No. So, uh, so I actually grew up uh, in the far flung reaches of Canterbury, New Hampshire, <laughs> which is, uh, exit, exit 18. So I, I dine, you know, I was the out of towner, uh, you know, I was from 15 miles North or so, uh, so far and, away. yeah, pretty rural town. And so I remember going down to uh, the big city, Manchester, New Hampshire, to the mall in New Hampshire going up. And, you know, it's very intimidating. There were stoplights, um, gas stations, you know. Uh, <laughs> traffic during the Christmas holiday shopping season. No! Exactly. No! There was only traffic. You know, my parents couldn't, couldn't handle it. But, uh, <laughs> but I knew that I wanted to come back, right? Like, so it's, it's, you know, I went away to, grew up in, uh, actually also went to a Catholic school. I went to Bishop Brady um, in Concord. Uh, which played Trinity, uh, a lot of things. And, uh, so when it went to, went to undergrad at UC Berkeley, uh, out West and, you know, kind of was just involved really in political science there. Not really a lot of tech, although I did, that was where I registered my first domain name and I started to learn how to use, uh, you know, I wrote HTML. So I guess in a certain sense, you know, the only, the only code that you've ever written. Yeah. The only code that I've ever written. Um, but the, but the, the, the domain name studentaction.org is still a pretty good domain name. That's still pretty good. That was like for a local student group. But, uh, so we, you know, so I did that and then, you know, my dad was a lawyer and so I didn't really have any other better ideas of what to do with your life. So what do you do? You go back to more school. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good thing I didn't know Jeremy then. Cause I definitely wouldn't have a law degree if I knew <laughs> Jeremy then. Why are you going back to school? Exactly. Like that sounds expensive. You know, what's your opportunity cost, right? Um, so, so went to Duke and for law school and got a master's in public policy and had a great time doing that, learned a lot. Uh, and then came back and kind of thought about, you know, whether I wanted to work at a big, you know, big city firm. And so I interviewed in LA and, you know, and, and Boston and worked, actually worked for a summer associateship at a firm in Boston uh, and then also worked at one in Manchester and just decided that, you know, if you want to go someplace, why are you putting barriers in front of yourself? Just, if, you know, if I wanted, if I knew that I wanted to live and work in Manchester, New Hampshire, just go do it, right? Stop trying to put new things in the way of going to get what I wanted. Uh, and so I moved back and worked for this firm, Sheen Finney, uh, Bass and Green, and had a great time. Um, and then back to, you know, kind of that whole community point. One of the first things that they do uh, when you kind of join a professional firm in, in Manchester is you run through this thing called Leadership uh, Greater Manchester, which is a way to have the business professionals, the nonprofit professionals start to interact with the community, right? Start to integrate you uh, and you can meet folks. And so uh, there I was, right? This is uh, 2000, 2004, I think, 2005. And there. I, I, I walk, you know, get up into the back of the bus. I make it into this program. I kind of, you know go in the way back uh, with the other young kids who probably are a little bit too young to be in this program. Uh, Cause these are all, you know, truly professionals that are in this thing. Uh, and I'm sitting back there and I end up sitting down next to, next to Jeremy and uh, you know, and you know, I'm looking to meet folks. And so we, that was where we first met. Yeah. That was where we first met. And, and then eventually we, you know, did one job, did another job, did a few things. And then uh, you know, you were like, I think you were basically like, Hey, like, you know, it might be cheaper if I just paid you directly. Well, it was also because you had these things like you only wanted to work on, you, you know, the firm only wants you to work on legal things. And then there were questions which were like, you know what, yeah, maybe, maybe there shouldn't be legal, legal questions. And uh, I just go, go figure it out. Um, 
Yeah. So, so I was born in New York. Parents moved here uh, when I was three. I actually worked for the company that Ralph Bear worked with. Uh, my dad remembers Ralph Bear running around the building, but at that point, they had it was in the time and day where uh, these these engineering companies would actually keep really good engineers just kind of tucked off and let them go create stuff. Um, and then uh, I went to school at WPI, uh, came back. And at that point, Dime was already running. Uh, and we started it when uh, between freshman and sophomore year in college. Um, and why Manchester? Why moving back? Well, it was kind of right after the dot-com explosion. So it wasn't, it wasn't as exciting to be in a big, a big expensive city to be. Uh, met Gray. Uh, after a couple of years of, of doing a bunch of legal stuff, uh, said, hey, why, you know, we're, let's cut out this middleman. We don't really need them anymore. And uh, started really coming up with, with what, you know, Dime became famous for, which is around load balancing and, and data, uh, managing traffic on in the cloud. And it was the same time when the, a lot of web tech companies were, were building some very cool applications online. They needed people like Dime to be able to, to load balance and to, to make sure those applications were, were highly robust and global and, uh, we did it in a very different way. And part of it was because of the funding environment didn't allow for it. Nobody was writing checks in 02 and 03 for tech companies. And so it meant that our sources of income had to be customers. And so if we, if we couldn't get a customer to pay for something, we just couldn't do it. And so it meant that, that we were maniacally focused on what delivered value for them and oriented the business around them. Yeah. And, and I think that was, uh, yeah, it was a great, you know, great part of that story is, uh, is being able to come in and see that bootstrapping environment at work. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go to the origin story of, of Dine. So, you, so you're a sophomore or a freshman, sophomore in between. So, you know, you're 19, 20 years old, whatever. So, so what was the uh, formation of the idea and then starting to actually build upon the idea? Yeah, very simple. I mean, it's, it's, and, and now almost, geez, almost 20 years later, uh, <laughs> brutal to think about. Uh, just the whole notion about remote access technology is just was so different collaboration tools. Like we're, you know, we're, we're, we're using, uh, uh, zoom for this and it just, we can see each other over video and, and have a, an audio conversation and, and all that stuff just didn't exist because before you'd have to set up a service on your local computer and then you have this broadband connection that was just brand new. You've only had broadband at home for a year. And, and so this notion of dynamic DNS, uh, which was a way of making a computer, remotely addressable to the, to the globe and having it be, be super easy. So you could just have keith.dynes.org and it would just work. That was, that was, uh, that was a, a brand new idea of making, making connectivity easy. Uh, so it started off as an open source project. Um, yeah, there was a computer in a lab building, uh, next to a printer and they didn't talk to each other. They didn't know how to talk to each other. And so we wrote some software to make, make that stuff work where the computer could go talk to, could address, the uh the printer and uh one thing led to another we had a bunch of bunch of customers bunch of users that weren't customers because they weren't paying at that point uh and we we're gonna shut the service down unless uh, a bunch of them sent in some some donations because uh, we didn't want to think of it as a company and uh we asked for twenty five thousand dollars there's twenty five thousand users dollar a piece we'll keep the service running and in about a month forty thousand dollars shows up and I'm like, damn it, we're on the hook. I guess we have to run a, we have to run this thing. We have a, we have a moral obligation to go do this. And that was the, that was the very beginnings of the company called Dime. And that continued. We were doing a bunch of consumer type of, of services and, and domain registration. And as, as this cloud became more and more prevalent, we started seeing that a bunch of our, our users were these these web enterprises and so the same type of technology that you'd find in a home router with wi-fi had dynamic dns so you could make your computer host music or host a web server that was the same type of things that twitter and pandora and amazon and all these other people were using to make these applications these brand new applications and these new architectures that nobody had ever done around collecting a lot of data and then being able to route traffic around on real time and so kind of organically over 08, 09, we, uh, we really shifted Dyn's focus to be a more enterprise type of technology company. And it was through that customer feedback loop that we said, hey, this is something that we should go do. Uh, started hiring our first salespeople in 2010. And, and that really became, you know, launched the company that we know as of, of Dyn uh, that, uh, again, collected a ton of data around how does the internet work at these very interesting large scales. We'd see 
countries getting shut down or hurricanes impacting uh, global connectivity and, uh, and, and really led to what, what Dyn is known as today. And when you did scale and start to, you know, get a laundry list of customers, you guys had a major impact on the overall health of the internet. <laughs> cause I, I remember there was that one day when I, I, there was some attack or something cause half the internet was down and it was reported in the news. Like, uh, some company in Manchester, New Hampshire dying is somehow involved with this. Yeah, that was October 21st of 2016, I believe is the day that you're referring to. Not, not that we would, not that we'd have this visceral PTSD. Yeah, every October 16th, we feel nervous, right? For no reason. Right? We're just, just, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, we get nervous, but, uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, it was exciting. And the, you know, that part of uh, our scaling and starting to engage uh, and, and build the process and systems and organization that could support uh, that many customers, right? That's kind of when I was got involved, not on the technical side, but on the kind of the organizational development side. So how do you find the talent in New Hampshire? How do you uh, build the culture? How do you build the, the physical environment, the space that gets people to collaborate and engage? And you know, how do you put together the, the right people, right? How do you, you know, you, you got to fly all the way out to California to meet board members like Jason Calcanis, right? You got to figure out how you can build a, a global company, uh, you know, in Manchester. And, uh, and, and that was a really fun thing to be a part of uh, because we were, you know, you were, we wanted to build something special out of Manchester that could compete uh, for talent uh, and for customers on a global scale. And, uh, and that's certainly, you know, what we focused on. And then, you know, car catches dog, all of a sudden, uh, or dog catches car, all of a sudden you're, you're there and your name is on the front page <laughs> because, because you are running a significant part of the internet and, you know, something that happens. No. So, um, one of the things that, I, so I did come in to visit your offices. I forget what year it was. And, uh, what you guys did with the mill yard was amazing. I was just like, it's probably still, I don't know, one of the best, like funkiest office spaces that I'd ever seen. Like it was just cool. And, uh, I just have like an emotional attachment to the mill yard. Cause my dad ran a company that was a leather coat manufacturing company. It was 10,000 oh, cool. square foot. So my, I cut my teeth as far as developing my work ethic by cleaning a 10,000 square foot leather coat factory, which nice. You know, it's a big so, space. Yeah. 10,000, especially leather, right? That's gotta be some, some messy. Uh, to clean. It's totally messy. Like I'd be, you know, kids were out running around on Sundays. I was, you know, cleaning the, the family business coat factory with leather scraps and sewing and even bathrooms, which that was fun too. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> it taught me a work ethic, but, yeah. um, but what do you get? So I, I think that was a big draw too, right? You had this culture that I think was very unique and you were probably attracting a lot of people that were like, you know, wanting to go reverse commute, right? Cause you could drive yeah. up to Boston from Massachusetts, drive up to Manchester from, um, you know, at least Northern Mass. Yeah. I mean, we, we when we made the decision that, Hey, we were going to, we wanted to be a sizable company. We wanted to be an organization that was actually, uh, people had a choice of where they could work and we wanted, we wanted their choice to be us. And, and that would increase the type of people that we could get. And, and another thing that we saw, and this is, I think, a challenge that a lot of companies have is they start to hit the ceiling where you start going from hiring a lot of, of specialists or generalists, sorry, and you start hiring a lot of specialists. And so when, when we thought of how to, how to make this funky space, how to make it unique, it was really around these specialists that we were attracting who they would have to make a, a real decision to say, I'm going to work in a community where there's very few people like me. So, you know, as I remember and we've used this example a lot of times when we've talked uh, to other companies that are thinking about this or other regions, we were hiring a, con a financial controller. And so like, eh, that's a relatively sophisticated, unique skill set that you don't see everywhere and, or, or, or database engineer or a DevOps manager. And so that, these type of things we were trying to say, Hey, we want you to invest your time and energy in the, in the ecosystem around here. And yeah, there's not 50 of you around here, but it means, you know, the, the fact that we're taking such care and effort around our space and type of people that we have, uh, the type of people that we attract, we hope that you will find that because we're putting so much care in all of these other things that we'll take care and, and effort into you and, and really invest in you. And, and that strategy worked work very well for us. I think it, it can work for any company, really anywhere. You can, you can do what, 
you know, there's, there's a, there's a playbook. It's not a formula cause it's not as, you know, do this, do this, do this, but it, there is definitely a playbook about things that you can do. So that way a community can be a very special place for, for these interesting and funky type of companies. Yeah. And I think to your point about Boston, I, you know, we, we always felt like we could compete very favorably all the way down. Maybe, maybe not quite as, as close as Cambridge, but you know, uh, just a little bit outside of that, you know, it actually took, you know, the 45 minutes that it took to drive to, to Manchester, New Hampshire, it would take the same, you know, and heck it probably takes 45 minutes to get from Cambridge to the seaport. So, you know, uh, it's, you know, we had a lot of luck uh, recruiting from Boston once we kind of built that reputation as, as a great place to work. And we were, we had like, we won a lot of national awards, a lot of local awards on, on culture. And we did, I, I remember it was one of my favorite projects at Dine was working on the space build out and really engaging uh, that our community in building it. Right. So as cool and as funky as that was, that was just a representation of what the people wanted to see. It's not like we hired some space, cons- you know, you think about what might happen in the show Silicon Valley and they probably hire a space consultant uh, to come in and tell you what's cool. Right. What we did was we just, you know, I think we had mood boards. Yeah. We, we put mood boards together and we're like, Hey, like solicit you know, ideas, what kind of crazy things can you guys think of? And, 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 what, and also functional because it's, it is an office it's supposed to be a place where people can collaborate and, and how do engineers want to collaborate? How do marketing people want to collaborate? And so how do you build a space in which it's very conducive to that type of environment for its local, local constituents. Mm-hmm. And then as we started doing more remote collaboration, that was something else that we had to, to, to take in a, into account is that how, how would we be able to extend our space so that it wasn't just something that geographically existed, but it also existed digitally. Yeah. There's a lot of action. Yeah. I love that when uh, I walked in, as soon as you walk in, you saw that on off switch for the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the best. Yeah. It, uh, you know, we never had anyone try to turn it off though. So no, it was, it was, it was locked. That's <laughs> it was, why it was locked yeah, it was behind, behind like some, some glass cage or something like that. Well, and that's, uh, d- you, you think a lot about culture and you talk, there's, there's lots of people that opine about culture in so many ways. And, and we think about like great culture, bad culture, a lot on this, on the scale, and, and, and one of the things that I think a lot of people don't get right about culture is that culture of a company should relate to its mission somehow. And, and so that, that view of an internet on off switch, as, as the Mirai botnet demonstrated, it, Dyne has a very fundamental importance to the internet being on or off. And if Dyne does not work, the internet is therefore off. And, and so it's just one thing that, that we that we think a lot about is, is how does the culture and the mission of the company link together? Because if everybody, it, it's a filter both ways. It's, it's a way where you can keep your, your best and most ardent supporters inside of what you're trying to do and trying to continue the mission on and extend the mission. And it's also a way to say, hey, do you belong or not belong? Because it's not the case that 100% of people are going to be the best at dying or the best at minimum. It's going to be the case that you're going to find the collection of people that are really good at portraying your mission and acting on your mission, believing in the mission. Yeah. And I think that's one of the cool things about, uh, about the story at Minim is about how focused it is on that end user experience of like, okay, what does it mean for me to feel safe and secure when I access the internet? Right. And that, and, and the simplicity of it. And I think, you know, if, if, if you look at the, the product experience at Dyn, right, that was built around the network engineer and uptime. Right. Uh, and if you look at the product experience at, at Minim, it's about simplicity and ease of use um, and there's a lot of, you know, it, it's focused around the, both the end user and the care team, right? So we really support uh, operators as they're trying to deliver, uh, you know, care and support to internet service subscribers, right? So it, it, it's that type of thing, simplicity and, and the way that blends in the, the mission of the company, the, the product of the company, uh, the philosophies that you bring, the space that you work in, um, you know, it really all does tie together. Well, that's a perfect segue. So, so why, you know, Dyn was acquired by Oracle, which we chatted about a little bit. We'll get into some more specifics as far as uh, some advice questions later about that. But, uh, you know, why start another company, Minim? Like, so, so I'm sure. <laughs> I have no idea why the whole start another company. I mean, the, 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 the why the Mirai botnet is, is, is like <laughs> as simple as that. We're just like, I, I thought we solved this problem a while back. And, Again, Dyn was so well known for its enterprise customers, uh, but it, it, that dynamic DNS, that what it was built on, this remote access technology, was was so fundamental and core to what we did. 
And then all of a sudden, that whole what is now considered IoT uh, and the growth of the internet is really taking place at the home. And, and actually, you know, you look around at the tools that are out there, the products that are out there, the platforms that are out there, how companies are deploying internet in the home. And, uh, you know, you don't have to tell any security people because they're already staying up all night thinking, oh, my goodness, what's the state of affairs? Mm. And so that was that was really the, the, the premise was trying to trying to solve what what was broken there. And you, you think about what the, the enterprise organization looked like. 10, 20 years ago, and it was a, a T1 connection. It looks like a home broadband internet connection today, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or back a ways. Uh, and, and the number of devices relatively similar in the enterprise 10, 15 years ago as it is in the home today. Like there might be 10 devices, 20 devices. And so instantly you can draw these parallels and you can start to say all of the very interesting network and security tools that exist in the enterprise context, Splunk, Palo Alto, a lot of the stuff that Cisco is doing, uh, things that Symantec are doing, things that Dyn did. Like you take all those types of tools and technologies, except you have to do- adopt them for the home because the homeowner is not a security person and they are not a network engineer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I still get lots of phone calls from, from my parents asking for tech support questions. Yep. Uh, <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> don't, don't we all? And, and honestly, this, it was, it was, uh, the, that was really what, where, where, where the premise of the company was is like, there's something in this, in this problem space. And, you know, we had the luxury, um, you know, this time go around to be a little bit more diligent, a little bit more thoughtful around it. And, and it turns out, um, you know, there's, there's some pretty interesting white space to go innovate. So, so the minimum is, is focused on actually selling these solutions to actual internet service providers. Is that the model? So, so it's B2B, but they're selling hopefully packaged in your router, all this security and okay. So, yeah. And, and, and how we got there was, I mean, just like any, anyone trying to figure out how to solve a problem, because that's, that's ultimately what, what I think of as, as what entrepreneurs are doing is that they, they understand that there's, there's, there's some issue in the world that needs to get fixed. And so there's, there's a, there's both of a, a product issue that needs to be brought to bear. And there's also a way you go to market, which is, which is unique and, and different. And, and one of the things that we found is that you know, the vast majority of, of internet spend, if you want to think of it that way uh, of internet in, you know, we'll just use North America as an example is run through service operators. It's run through internet service providers. It's hundred million households and they spend $60 a month on internet. And so they, in some ways have aggregated all that internet spend and they then go buy tools, technology, products, hardware, software that, that deliver that experience. And so we were pretty convinced that, um, that had to be a major part of the story. And so we partner with operators to help them deliver IOT security and Wi-Fi management in the home. Yeah. And, and, and in addition to the operators, there's also people like security integrators, right? The people that are kind of going after that top high end home that want to make it work for people. And there's people that maybe they're going to buy directly from their ISP. They're going to buy a router, right? And they're going to manage that themselves, that part of it themselves. And so there's, you know, this, this major channel, which is ISPs, uh, there's, you know, and you can think of big ISPs, like the ones everyone knows. Uh, and then you can think of a, you know, the thousands of small internet wireless internet service providers that we also work with, um, that are, you know, make, delivering a great product at, at, uh, you know, at a, at a cheaper cost and they need someone to help develop that software because, just like, you know, we talked about all the, all the money and all the companies and all the investment and all the value that's been generated around, you know, those high-end security management tools. Well, none of that stuff is really filtered back to, to, the, to the subscriber for network management for the home. And uh, the, the companies, for whatever reason, haven't, you know, it's either hardware companies who are great at hardware, but they're not really software companies. And so they haven't been able to make that work for people that interface or, you know, when you think about ISPs, they're great at aggregating content, right? They all kind of started as content providers and they're good at, you know, delivering customer support, doing billing, you know, managing through and deploying, uh, you know, the, the, the pipe that gets to the door that, that makes sure your internet can work. But again, they're not that type of innovative company that is going to, uh, you know, develop a software package, right? Uh, so seeing that as a place where we could really come in and help, uh, these companies be successful and, and, and make, you know, subscribers feel more confident about their homes, more secure and, and do it in a way that they could, you know, they could feel comfortable with. Uh, you know, we've really been 
really excited about all the momentum that we've seen coming out of it, including uh, we were just out in, in Amsterdam at, uh, at a, uh, an event called IBC, where it really collects all the major uh, you know, broadcasters uh, and, and you know, cable companies in the world. And they're all super excited uh, about we launched a big partnership with an organization called Erdetto, which has tier one relationships with operators all around the world. And we actually, the, the momentum was so quick, we, not, we launched the product on, on Friday. And then by Monday, we already had uh, one, of the, one of the customers, one of our joint customers uh, did a press release and signed an MOU about how they're going to bring this to their uh, you know, millions of subscribers. So, so it really is a space where people are, are hungry for this type of technology to just work and be easy and fit in with the way that the, the system operators go to market and be something that the consumer can use. And so it's been really exciting to see that start to, to really hit. What well, is pretty staggering for your website? It says the world will have 20 billion connected devices by 2020. So you hear that and you're just like, yeah. Uh, and as a, you know, homeowner, consumer, you, you don't know what's secure or, you know, so it totally, totally makes sense. Now, when you're, you're building this company this time around, you did take kind of a, a different approach. So you did raise an initial seed round, seed round of funding from Flybridge and Founder Collective. So why, uh, why raise capital? Uh, this time around versus, you know, bootstrapping like you did the, the first company? Well, we did. We're, we're doing a couple things differently. So one is the, the funding structure is a little bit different. Uh, this, this company, one of the things that, that, that we've convinced ourselves about and have, have seen pretty evident, uh, even the, the two and a half years that we've been running, is that the, the market conditions around this, this organization are, are the, the window of opportunity is much more constrained. So speed of execution, I think, matters a lot more for, for this organization. Um, there's also, you know, we're selling to, to, to very large operators. You know, they, I, I, the, the sales cycle is multi, multi, multi-year. And, and that means that you have to have a bit more patience about, uh, the, the time it takes in order to get up to market, find customers who are paying. Um, and, and there's all sorts of things you can do to de-risk those types of opportunities. Uh, but you know, these, these operators, you know, they service millions of people and they want to make sure that they are able to have a footprint that always works and they think about these 10 year deployment cycles. So, uh, it, it means they have to be a lot more patient. It's not just something where you can, you can slap together a web application and then turn on a bunch of acquisition. And then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're break even or you're, you're generating a lot of revenue. And, and because this one is, is a bit more self-funded, uh, it was a way for, for us to have some type of external accountability, um, system and also people that we could ask questions like, you know, we don't have all the answers here. And, uh, uh founder collective, uh, David Frankel uh, has previous experience running an internet service provider in South Africa. And so that international and that operator background, I mean, he saw it and he's like, yep, got it. This is going to be everywhere. Very cool. And, and then, uh, and then, uh, uh, our other, other, um, uh, investor, uh, Flybridge, uh, they were actually, uh, David Aronoff was, was actually working on a similar idea and a slightly different kind of, uh, approach. And so we got to know each other a bit as we both colloquially were referred to as we dated for a while to make sure we wanted to, uh, to work together. And, uh, and then, uh, the rest is kind of history. So what's the current stage of the company? Like minimum, where you guys are at in terms of, uh, employees, growth plans or whatever you can share. Yeah. So we're, we're about 32 full-time people. Uh, the product is, is relatively complicated because there's a hardware piece, a mobile application piece, it's cloud, it's, it's, it's international. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a bigger team than probably an average startup would be. Uh, but we're, you know, we're, we're, we're early stage. We're right in the, I think a very exciting time right, right between that product market fit and, and, and early initial traction. But, uh, we keep saying, uh, you know, ask again and you know, we'll see how it's going. Yeah. Put, you know, post revenue. And so we're making, uh, uh, you know, money from customers. And I think that's, that's the real thing for us about having both these big, big sales cycles that we're going after and big companies that have a lot of subscribers that are associated with them. And then also, you know, much smaller, you know, uh, internet service providers that have a thousand subscribers, right? Because they, you know, it's, and it's really interesting. You go to the, the big ones and they, they want their logo on it. And they're like, you know, let's put it through. We're going to put it through a, a lab trial and then a field trial and then a phase one field trial and then a, and then a, then a friends and family field trial. You know, so it's all these different things. And then you talk to the, and these guys are like, you know, we don't care. Just put your, 
just give us your app and we'll, ship, and we'll ship it. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, when can you send me the boxes that has this working? So, um, so that's exciting. And it also really gives us a chance to experience that customer feedback and that subscriber engagement, uh, you know, which gives the, the larger customers a lot more confidence that this is going to work for them because we can speak from experience with end users that are benefiting uh, as opposed to just talking about a product that that might work. And probably one other, one last thing on, on just kind of stage wise, we've, uh, Dine was a very geographically focused company. And so one thing that we're doing uh, at, at Minimum is we're, we're a much more distributed team. Uh, one of our co-founders is actually, uh, it's in New York City. Uh, we have, I don't know, 13 states represented. Um, and, and, one of the, again, going back to the, the theory around mission and culture have to, have to be connected. Uh, we support operators. And, and so they have a very different local custom in terms of how, how much do they want to stop bad things from happening without user permission? Like how, how paternalistic do they want to be? What are the local rules in different areas? I mean, there's a whole international question as well about different countries having different types of, uh, regimes about what, what's acceptable or not. So we always think of ourselves as being a guest in people's homes. And, and that's one of the core tenants that we as a company think of. And so one of the things that we've also tried to do is, un, is be able to draw from wherever the world's best at, you know, a particular skill set are. And, and so that's something that's led us to be a much more distributed uh, team uh, at, at minimum. And, you know, it's, it's, it's meant, uh, it's meant an adjustment for all of us, uh, now, I'm I'm still working through it, but um, it's 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 good. so far so good. I and mean, what what have been some kind of the the differences of you know building a company second time around? I mean, especially like Jeremy, like you, I mean, Dino started when you were in college, so you know it's just I had two jobs. Well, <laughs> I, I was a dishwasher, so this is technically my third job. Uh, yeah, it, it's 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 a really it's it's so different in in so many ways. Um, but then at the the core of it, it's it's still the same. Um, I'd say as, as the startup person, emotionally, it's a lot easier. I mean, there's a lot that's talked about, um, um, Jason Jacobs, I think talks about like the emotional pressure and the emotional to- uh, toll and tax that entrepreneurs face. And sometimes that can be, uh, you know, bad, uh, debilitating, debilitating. Yeah. And, and this time go around, I think the emotional side is a lot easier because you just know you're going to get no like 49 times in a row. And, and so by the time you get to the 50th, yes, you're like, Oh, perfect. That's what the model said. <laughs> you just kind of go back to business as usual. So there, there's a variety, I think of, of shortcuts that are, that are easier. Um, on the flip side, there are times where you're like, I'm not going to try that whatsoever. And, and you'll see a team member who will, will try that same thing that you didn't think was going to work and they're, they're successful at it. So it's, you, you know, you have to, you have to stay curious and you have to constantly be, be open-minded about what, what things will work, what things won't work. Uh, and, and probably the other, the, you know, the, the other thing I, I think about and just being different is it's a lot easier to get in front of people. So whether that's prospective employees, whether that's partners, whether that's customers, it's, it's, it, it, that the network of the people that are there and, and we ultimately sell to a very different space. It's, um, yeah, dying, yeah, for sure. So it's you know the overlap helps, but it, it it doesn't you know it's not a it's not a game changing advantage that you know maybe other spaces might have. I don't know what's been different for you. Yeah, I mean, so far, I mean, you know, I think one of the most exciting things is working with you know Jeremy and Liz and Andy and John, people that I you know I didn't know them when I started at Nine. Right, you build these like long, strong relationships that you know I was pretty early in my career, and so you know those relationships are forged and, and kind of deep and trusting. And, you know, that's, that's something that's different because I have those core relationships with you guys here. Um, and, you know, and now we're building onto those, right. We're going to build, as we talked about, you know, we, we, you know, people were pretty excited about that. We're bringing this minimum team back together and, and the conversation inside the company was, you know, hopefully one day there'll be stories written about the fact that the minimum team is coming back together. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because it'll be that next generation of family that, and trusted relationships that get built up. So I think that's been a little bit different. I do think that the, you're right about the emotional toll, uh, that, you know, the, I will say the highs are highs and the lows are still lows, but they're not quite, the amplitude is reduced. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, because you do, you, you do know that it's, you know, it's never quite as dark as you think, and it's never quite as, as bright as you think. And so uh, you just focus relentlessly on, you know, outcomes and customers and, uh, and, and, you know, 
locking arms with your team. And you know, the, the other upside that I do think kind of comes from that is this, this sense both of having more to offer your teammates who maybe haven't been through that experience, people that we didn't work with mm-hmm. at the time that we are now working with at minimum. Uh, and so bring, you know, bring that perspective to bear. Uh, and then also working really hard to say, to stay humble and foolish about, you know, just because it didn't work X doesn't mean that it won't work Y. And so, you know, making sure that you don't, uh, you know, use, uh, you know, win the last, you know, try to fight the last war, right. To use a military analogy. And, uh, and so that's been, that's been, you know, one thing to balance, but all in all, I think, you know, it's, it's just really fun to work with people that, uh, you know, you, you know, and you work well with. And, and that was the thing when Jeremy was like, come on, this is going to be really fun. And I was like, took a yeah, yeah. It took a little while. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we're but, here now, but we're here now and, and we're doing it because I think that it's, uh, you know, there's just a, so much, uh, you know, interest and engagement, uh, from this user base. And when you use the product, right, you can, anyone can go download it at minimum labs, right. And like, but get a router and, and do it. Uh, and once you experience that, you know, the way that you interact with your home, the confidence that you have just in your daily living, uh, and the security you feel, you just know that this, you know, Hey, who knows if it'll be minimum in every house on the, on, on the planet, but something like this is going to be in every house, mm-hmm. just the same way that there's a door and a lock, you know, at almost every home because people want to feel safe and secure and have the ability to manage their environment. And what is true for the physical environment is going to be true for the digital environment. Yeah. So we're just hoping that, you know, uh, between the capital and the team and, and the product mix that we're hitting it at the right time. And that we're the, you know, we're, we're more iPhone than Newton, right. Or whatever analogy you want to have. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, uh, you know, so far the evidence is that we're, we're really serving, serving a need that people are excited to, to, to use. Well, it seems like there's a newly announced unicorn every week when you read, you know, all the funding announcements and, um, you know, Jason Calacanis, who's on your board at Dyne, you know, he sent out an email about Pegasus, which is this new creature that flies over the VCs because they're generating revenue and <laughs> raise funding. And he mentioned Dyne as one of these premier type of Pegasus uh, companies. Uh, back in the day. So what advice would you give to founders about raising funding? Uh, because there is, seems to be this obsession. And when you see unicorns getting minted every week, you're like, Oh, I got to raise, you know, uh, you know, you see like a $10 million seed now versus a million dollars. Isn't like all these funding rounds are just all over the place these days. Yeah. The funding rounds, like it's really easy to get distracted I mean, for years. It's always frustrated that, that, uh, when the funding round hits, like that's when the hard work begins because you're supposed to invest the capital to actually go create value that customers are going to buy a product for. And so in some ways the the funding is the least interesting signal. I mean, it's supposed to be that a bunch of smart people think that you have a a bunch of great ideas and supposed to be foreshadowing what, what, what may happen. And sometimes it works out, uh, but there's so much, and, and, and we're watching a bunch of, of like of really high priced companies going out and they're going through a public a public markets process and, and their valuations are, are not necessarily lining up with what the fundamentals of the business are. And so I've never got caught up in the watching the, the financing side of things and the people that are like, oh, well, it's a seed or is it a C plus or is it like an a, a three extension plus squared? I mean, there's, there's like all these. It's just you have these sequential rounds of companies and I think it is, it's a lot easier to say, well, what, what kind of phase of the company in? is, is yeah. an organization? Way in? Are, they, are they, are they pre-revenue? Are they trying to figure out traction? Are they going through scaling? And, and, and the reason why that's helpful, it's, 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 yeah, you can compare different companies to say, okay, is this company at this stage and versus this at this stage, but it's, it's what are the types of things does that company need? And therefore, what are the types of things that are helpful for that organization? And that's something I think that we just don't do a very good job at. We just say, well, it's a C plus and a C plus might look like a, a series B somewhere else. And if you just measure it by number of funds then it's not really a good comparison and, and the capital contributed. And I, I remember this from a Nantucket conference, I don't know, a bunch of years ago. And somebody was talking about how the valuation got bit up and they were like, Oh, we're, we're 10 million and now we're hundred million. And next year we're going to be a billion. And it was a company that's, not around anymore. Uh, and, and then after that, one of the, one of the speakers is, was, um, uh, Jitsaxina from Matiza. 
And, and he's like, Oh, you know, he said, Oh, well, you know, you know, something that's uh, it's better than a billion dollars of valuation. It's a billion dollars of orders. Mm. And then he's, it, you know, the, the audience is like, Oh, that's so great. And he's like, you know, it's even better than a billion dollars of orders, billion dollars of profit. Mm-hmm. And, and it just gave the whole lens about, Hey, unicorn is a great thing to go measure. And it can be, it's like anybody can have a billion dollar valuation. It, it, it's, can you do a billion dollars of a business? Can you generate that much value? And so I, I, I really love how there is a different view and, and what Jason was talking about being a Pegasus is like, that's, it, I'm glad there's a name for it. Cause that's, that's just something that I've always believed in, which is if you, if you treat your customers well and you generate value through them, then you can do a lot of, of exciting things. Uh, and that's, that's what I wake up and think about every day. Not, you know, how do I get some investor to write me a fancy check that values my company at some fancy number and have probably a very little percent of that organization? Because it's it's about the generation of value, and and you want your employees to have that value. You want your crew to have that value. Yeah, I think you know, for for me, it's very much about focusing on the customer and being a customer. You know, are we solving their problems? And when we're thinking about value, ultimately, the value that we need to be focused on is the customer value. Not, you know, we need to sell, we need to be working on understanding the value and selling the value uh, of our product to customers. And if you get focused too much on selling the value, you know, your equity is not your product, right? Your, your product delivers to a customer and people that want to buy your equity are just, you can't focus there. That'll come, you know, when you focus on your customers. And it's a tool. It's, yeah. it's ultimately a tool to deliver value. Yeah. And, and so that's the part of it, you know, that I think about and, and I'm excited that Jeremy had the name for it. Uh, and he, he's, I mean, he's a great marketer, so wouldn't, you know, it's obviously no surprise that he would come up with the right name for it, but, but I think, you know, that's why there's great alignment around, you know, with founder collective who has very focus on, on customers and, and whether you raise money or don't raise money or any of that stuff, as long as you keep your focus relentlessly on your customers and making them successful, yeah. then that's, you know, that's going to be the most likely way that you're going to go uh, be a successful company at the end of the day. Now let's go back to the, the acquisition. So I'm always fascinated by like how acquisitions come together since you had scaled a company and then you did raise money and you had visibility that Dyn was this, you know, company that was, uh, you know, doing really well. Is there a point in time where all of a sudden companies start coming around, sniffing around, like you get inbound phone calls of like, Hey, let's talk. And then, at what point does it become serious? And then I'm asking so many questions in one. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, at what point is it like, uh, real to the point where you're probably distracted because there, there's so much of the due diligence going on. And like, so it just seems like there's multi layers of when do you get to the point where the acquisition becomes, um, you know, people aren't just kicking tires it's becoming real. And how do you decipher spending time that's productive? Cause it's going to distract you from what the day-to-day operations of your business in, entails. Yeah. There, there, there's a, there's a whole set of tactical questions about the, how best to take a bunch of inbound interests and like, is it real? Is it not real? And, and, and then there's, there's a, there's a, there's probably a strategic set of questions, which, which get boiled into two buckets. One is when is the right time for any organization to think about going through a sales process? Uh, or, or just how do you, how do you handle inbound organizations, uh, who could be great partners, uh, or could be great acquirers. And then there's another one, which is what's, what's kind of the will of the, of, of especially in an early stage company, this matters a lot more. What's the will of the co-founders? Like, do they want to go an extra five miles or five years or, is now the time? Like, are they at a, at a, a global maximum or a local maximum where they think that, you know, this is the best that the company is going to be. And even if we put in more work, we're not going to generate much value either for customers or for the marketplace or everything else. So, I mean, the, the, the things that, that we thought of um, was to, to eliminate or to, to decrease the amount of distractions was, um, Anytime that there was a bigger company that was asking those questions, like, you know, there's, there's ways to filter those things out of like, how, how can that organization be helpful for us and, and just be super relentless and, and, and be upfront because they, it's not the first time that they're asking a smaller company to engage with them. And so they know that the stakes are high. Um, 
that said, it's, it's also easy for a larger organization to have like 10 or 20 people that if they each spend an hour and there's two people on the other side of the smaller organization, you know, you have this asymmetry. They just have many more bodies. And so you have to be very asymmetric in how you, how you respond and be very diligent about your time and just be like, listen, you know, we're busy. We have a, a bunch of great things going on. And, you know, we've heard of you because you're like the great big grill in the space and either respect or don't respect depending upon your point of view about what you do. Um, and then just be polite because I think I've seen a lot of organizations and a lot of co-founders, they, they, you know, they get this, this very holier than thou attitude and they're like, Oh, never going to talk to you. And then two or three years later, either that company is, they need something from that organization that is game changing for that, that, that startup or for that company, or, uh, the person who they were talking to leaves and goes to an organization that they wish they would have that relationship with. And then you find out that this people part of the business matters so much that, that the, the personal relationships are actually what really drive these things. Um, so those are the tactic ones that, that we thought about and, you know, we got it right sometimes we didn't get it right other times. And then the, the other way that we think about it is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, it's, it's hard to know when, when's the right time. And, you know, you could be open-minded and you, you always compare it against your internal plan about what, what do you want to go do? Uh, you know, sometimes you get to a place where, where you start to say, Hey, it's, it, it's, it's time. And, and like, as using Dine's example and having a few years of separation from it, uh, the cloud became really a war of giants. And so now you look at it and it's like Amazon's in the lead and Microsoft is, is number two. And it went from a whole ecosystem of lots of companies were providing lots of tools to, I could just go to Amazon for everything or I could just be Microsoft. And, and, and we saw that consolidation taking place and said, you know what, we need to, we need to be serious about what our prospects are as an independent company. And if we, if we didn't find a place where we could have a home, uh, you know, you, you really risk being a small boat in a, in a very big ocean. And, you know, we would have, I pretty confident that we would have been able to continue to be an independent, successful business, but, you know, you just think about what's the best outcome for everyone. And, and, uh, you know, ultimately we, we ended up, uh, uh, going through the process where, uh, we were acquired by Oracle. Um, all right. So, so how about building your board? So, you know, we talked about Jason Calacanis. So, you know, he's, uh, someone that, you know, grew up in New York and, you know, out in the Valley and he's just like a high, highly visible angel investor. He's a media guy. So, so how do you recruit, you know, people for your board and, you know, someone like that, that, you know, it's not like you, um, you know, were connected through, you know, investors in Boston or something, you know? So like, so, so how'd you go about, you know, building your, your board initially? And, and, and we got connected to Jason before we had any investment capital. Uh, and he was in LA at the time too. So he wasn't like a, some sort of Silicon Valley, uh, Technorati person running for mayor, like, uh, like he is now. I don't know if he's running for mayor, but just, yeah, yeah. Mayor Jason, mayor yeah. Jason, um, it, we had made a conscious decision in at the time of 2012 to, to have a group of people that we could, we could lean on. Um, you know, I think the, the example I gave in a company meeting that year was you know, if we're, if we're about a hundred people at the time. And if our budgeting was off by 5%, it would mean that we either hired five people too few or we hired five people too many. And as a result, you know, we may not have been able to afford them. And, and so we looked around for just people that were different than kind of your typical um, <laughs> people out of a, out of a tech company mold. And, and when you think about it, you get this huge palette of people. We, we thought of uh, uh, internet experts and, and, and people who were just fundamental thinkers about internet technologies, where they were going and which would help on product. We thought of these people that would be helpful on running companies. And so we looked locally at who are the people that were running um, large successful organizations, which may or might, may not have been able in the, to help in the, the technology world, but certainly running and managing teams would have great insight. Uh, and, and kind of on a flipping basis, we, you know, I'd, I'd followed Jason. I was listening to this week in startups and I'm like, yeah, Maybe he wants to do not just an advisory board, but maybe he wants to do like a real board and, and see if he'd be interested. And, and so, uh, you know, we, we kind of divvied up the list and everybody kind of reached out to different people. Uh, and he said, yeah, I've never really been thought of as a growth 
scale company board member. And I would love to see that. And he's back. He was like the one that said, I want to volunteer for the audit committee because I want to see what kind of issues that companies at the size and scale thought of. Hmm. And so just as, as much as you find these really impressive people, a lot of times if you can offer them something in return, which is yeah. gaining insight in the industry that you're in or, or some type of skill set that they don't have, you can typically find these, these really cool uh, ways which you can align to, to work together. And certainly in Jason, you know, the, and, and probably before that, the personal chemistry really helps. And so we had kind of one of our trips made, uh, made an extra half day open. And so we spent a bunch of time with Jason went out to dinner. Um, kind of one thing led to the next and, and, you know, he was a super highly engaged, you know, plenty of awesome Jason stories, um, and, and love what he's done where he's doubled down and said, Hey, I want to, I want to help craft and be the best angel investor in the world. And so like watching him trying to craft companies and, I see a lot of the lessons and even, even four years later, a couple years later, him telling the same stories that he would tell us or the same lessons, but in such a more crisp manner. And it's like, that's really cool to see. Yeah. Uh, so that's how it's like, reach out to, you know, make an aspirational list because you don't know, you'll be surprised at how many people <laughs> say yes, then who will say no, I don't have time. So what do you guys like to do outside of work? You're busy building a company, but during free time, if there is any. Is there free time? Is there free time? Uh, you know, well, spend time with the family. Uh, you know, and then honestly, like the the fun part about uh, doing what I do all the time. And this is definitely true at Dine is that your work is your hobby, right? So uh, I think those I I actually always look for people who, you know, I always say that the smartest people are the people that uh, figure out how to get paid for doing the stuff that they like. And so, you know, what do I like to do? Well, I like, you know, kind of thinking big thoughts with Jeremy and, uh, I love technology and I love startups. And so that's really, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's kind of like what, what I'm up to. Uh, you know, maybe it's kicking the soccer ball around with, with, uh, my older son, Graham, who's eight, um, or, you know, uh, next weekend we're going to, uh, to Montreal with, uh, with my wife to celebrate our anniversary. So, a little bit of travel. So that's a non, yeah. non work thing that's, uh, you know, 10 days away. Yeah, exactly. I, I think both of us have gotten to this, this pattern, uh, and, and Grace said it pretty well. It's like, once you find people you like to work with, the, the work and play aspect becomes this really fuzzy line. Yeah. And for some people that might be really hard or just impossible where they need a separation from it. And so like ways in which I think people can find separation, and this is stuff that we do is like, yeah, we work on minimum a lot. Um, but you know, we're, we're trying to help other organizations get started, former colleagues looking at making career changes and trying to walk them through like what yep. choices that they have and what types of things are, are most relevant for them. Um, it, we run a, a bookstore in Manchester uh, called bookery. And so we have a lot of the political people coming through running yeah, the for, politics. That's true. Yeah. And, and so it's, and, and one of the, it feeds on itself because one of the things that's really cool about politics is, is being able to ask some of the candidates about internet and free speech and yeah, totally. global commerce. And like, that's a very relevant thing. And it's a very authentic thing and happened to be an issue that I'm passionate about. And I know Grace passionate about. So I, I don't know. We, we just, I'm sure we turn off. I just don't know when that is. And, and even if we did, like, I don't know, it is like play. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm the same way. Like I, consume a lot of podcasts about the tech industry. I listen to a lot of Jason Galicanis and, uh, you know, just thinking about, you know, cause like you said, I, got, I I'm fortunate where I get to do what I love. And so it's not a chore. It's not like, Oh, this weekend I'm going to spend some time working. Really? That's horrible. No, it's, uh, it's just, you know, doing what you love to do. So hopefully everyone can find their own path and, and have a similar, similar way. I hope so too, because I got more and more about seeing companies that are solving and trying to tackle more interesting societal issues and problems. You, you can't help but feel an optimism, or at least I feel this, this, have, this high level of optimism for where innovation is helping drive people. I mean, there's certainly drawbacks. Uh, you know, I think there is this, this a bit more of a question or, or certainly a, um, a reservation on, on technology and innovation being a, a societal good and, and making sure it's done with the right, the right thoughts, the right societal impacts in mind. You know, you think about big data as an example and just, Hey, big data for the sake of big data is not a good thing, but um, you know, you start looking at how, how much we've improved. I think the way in which we you know, can, 
communicate with each other. Like that's, that's a phenomenal capability. It's like, let's make sure we don't squander that capability. And so those are the things that I get optimistic about. Yeah. There's a great, I don't know. I don't know if you follow uh, on Twitter, this thing called uh, our world in data. No, uh, it's really, if you, if you have it, uh, you know, search it up and all it does is talk about, uh, the positive stories that exist in the data around what's happening in the world, because for better, or for worse, if it, you know, kind of the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. And so we see a lot of bad news, but if you look at things like the number of, uh, you know, people in extreme poverty and you look at that over the last hundred years, I mean, it is astonishing how much better off the world is today than it was a hundred years ago. If you look at, uh, child mortality, right? If you look at all these different things and there's all kinds of, you know, there's bad stories everywhere and there's things that are happening that shouldn't, but we're safer than we've ever been, even though we're also more nervous about mass shootings, right? So, you know, there's always more positive momentum that we can have better places that we can go, right? That's why entrepreneurs exist. That's why progress is, is, is there for us to go, go achieve. But there are so many optimistic stories about where we're, where we are today. And, uh, you know, and, and that's what finding those optimistic stories uh, and focusing on them is, is what, uh, what is part of what keeps me going all the time. Yeah. And, and one of them is that drinking water becomes more and more safe uh, across this one of the stories that, that that's talked about. And one of the graphs that, that we hope is at minimum to contribute is that the percent of internet connections, which are safe, powered or protected by minimum will go up and we'll reach nearly hundred percent. Hopefully, Minim is the next great company coming out of Manchester that does scale and has its own mafia at some point. Um, like you know, that, th- yeah. And thanks for the update on all the great stuff going on in Manchester, New Hampshire. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun just kind of rehashing you know, the growing up days and all the great stuff that's coming out of that state of New Hampshire. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. When you're, when you're back in, uh, back in Hooksit for Thanksgiving or something, look us up. We'd love to uh, show you around the new downtown Manchester. Absolutely. That's a no-brainer. Thanks for taking the time. All right. Bye. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.